and welcome to another episode of IAF Talk, the podcast of the International Academy for Leadership of the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. In today's episode, we're meeting Sven Gerst and Emmanuel Martin, who facilitated our seminar Liberals, Property and the Environment. And they will not only explain why property rights are so important to a better protection of the environment, but also give us insights from the seminar. Yeah, I think one of the first uh, questions we should uh, ask is, what would be the pillars, the you know, the fundamental principles of um, liberal approach to the environment? And I, I think Sven and I sort of uh, uh, help the participants to discover those. Yeah, I think there are four fundamental pillars of what I would call liberal environmentalism. I would say the first one is that liberals are fundamentally progressive and optimistic about the future. They are so-called cornucopians. And second, then I think that they are, other than other conservationists, more anthropocentric. They care about human well-being, about human flourishing. So that makes them distinct because they preserve the environment for human well-being and not for other reasons. The third pillar that I would see is when we want to help the environment or conserve or preserve it, um, I think there is a lot of talk about government uh, regulation, command and control intervention, but liberals offer a different approach. They offer the approach of property rights um, and markets to solve these problems. Lastly, they see it also at a different level. Command and control is often central, but with a central government, central authority, while liberals see and want to extract local knowledge through polycentric, decentralized governance. So I think if we think about polycentric governance and the other pillars that I have outlined, we arrive at a very thick understanding of liberal environmentalism that is very, very different from any other approach of conservation and environmental protection. Yeah, I think we we, also, we stressed to the the two pillars of economic theory actually are the the problem of incentives and the problem of knowledge. And I think uh, we made it pretty clear uh, all along the seminar that there are many examples actually of of, of those uh, problems. When economists in the past, when economists used to think about incentives, they would uh, tell you that people pollute because they have bad incentives. Thus, it's a market failure. And uh, according to uh, uh, Arthur Bigu, you should have a tax. The government should introduce a tax in order to, you know, reduce pollution. That's a polluter-payer principle. And what we tried to do during this seminar is to <clears throat> have an, another approach based uh, on Ronald Coe's uh, theory of property rights that, um, well, It's probably not the, the right, uh, always the right solution. The idea with COS is that we have environmental problems because we basically have a tragedy of the commons. People don't care about the environment because they don't have the incentive to do so because it's not theirs, because there is a lack of property rights or there's a very bad definition of property rights. And it's just not a market failure. It's, it, some people even say it's a, it's a government failure. And the idea is to, well, property rights give people incentives to care about the environment. So it should be a good idea, you know, to enforce property rights over the environment so that you give people the incentive to care about it and, and preserve the environment. The idea being that if you 
the, the first thing is that if you have, if you own part of the environment, if you own property, property for you then helps you project yourself in the future. Because it's my garden, because it's my house. Oh, I have an, a stake in it. I, I have an incentive to take care for tomorrow. It's my, my value, okay? And it helps me project myself in the future for my kids. For uh, The very notion of investment is actually based on property. If you don't have property, then it's not mine. It means what? It means it's open access, okay? You have like 10,000 people having access to the same beach. It's not their beach. It's just nobody's beach. They don't have any incentive to care about it. So they, their, their behavior is just short term. Their behavior, their incentive is to use as much of the resource as fast as possible before the others do the same. And that's how we have the problems we have with the fish, with many uh, environmental resources uh, like uh, the rhinos or the, the elephants uh, and, uh, and a lot of endangered species because people don't care about them because it's not theirs. Um, and then the, the other aspect of, the, of property rights is that it can help you protect the environment, not only because people have an incentive in doing so because it's theirs and all that, but also because if my neighbor pollutes my environment, my, my property, which is my environment, I have an incentive to sue them, to sue my neighbors, and to use the, the common law, the, the law system, in order to uh, make them uh, liable, responsible for polluting the environment. But the problem is, as cause tells us, if you don't have property rights, who's going to be responsible for that? And nobody has the incentive to take anybody in front of a court to solve those, uh, uh, those externalities. But often then the government steps in and uh, solves open access uh of problems or the tragedy of the commons through intervention, through hard intervention by policy measures. And what we have done in this seminar is to stress that this is only one part of a toolkit and often runs into a lot of unintended consequences. Because there's one fundamental problem besides the incentives, it's the local knowledge dimension. So how big would a quota be? How would I determine which kind of taxation I want to have to reach a social optimum if we think about taxation? So what we have stressed is that the free interaction of human beings through property rights and a free exchange in markets, you generate this dispersed, tacit knowledge that, are, that is out there, that is contextual, local. So precisely this dimension is what makes, I think, the liberal approach to environmental protection so different and doesn't run into the consequences that hard intervention by governments does. Also, we added a layer of social norms to it. So if we have a functioning community where there are local rules in place that preserve the environment and that achieve conservationist goals, we should be very hesitant to interfere with this kind of local rules because we would generate so much unintended consequences. Because even property rights and um, markets need background institutions to work, like the stability, political stability, the rule of law, and the right social norms. So the policymaker should always give priority to local knowledge and be hesitant and modest when it comes to uh, interference with local rules that work. And we have, through our participants, observed quite a lot of examples where local rules actually worked. And let it be in Jordan, where a lot of tribes are actually in charge of certain preservationist goals. 
So I find that very, uh, very distinct about the liberal environmental approach. Yeah, we, we really stress this decentralized approach. And the idea is that no one expert, not one expert has the knowledge that the local people have. And one of the examples was with this uh, farmer in the Netherlands who, uh, I mean, it's, this was absolutely fascinating. The guy was spent like 20 minutes, I think, talking about the soil of his grass. And believe me, Those 20 minutes were so enlightening because the guy was telling us about the worms, how the worms will dig holes and how because of this, indeed, it did not need to irrigate his uh, his fields uh, whilst all the neighbors using pesticides and using all sorts of um, uh, technologies would actually need to irrigate. But he, and those people would, would rely on experts' knowledge. That, that was the point. And uh, because those people have sort of uh, lost contact with their own property, relying too much on, you know, not local knowledge. And he was, he was telling us that it was probably a mistake. Because um, if you rely on your local knowledge, you probably have all the solutions you need. And, uh, and he was not anti-science or whatever. He was very progressive. He was using measurement. He, he would measure the soil, the calcium, the uh, nitrogens, everything in his soil. And he had, what he was telling us is that he was dealing at the local level with a complex ecosystem that it took him years to understand and to know or to rediscover the knowledge of because his grandparents actually had the knowledge. But because of the, you know, Uh, use of pesticides and all that they, they completely lost touch with this knowledge so there is this local complexity and this was fascinating because if you start to you know inject such or such product that disrupts the balance the local balance in this complexity then you have all sorts of unintended consequences it's a bit like the, in the economy actually the analogy is, is very nice Yeah, I fully agree. This is, I think, one of the most revealing points of the seminar, how the environment and ecosystems are actually a case study, how institutional complexity works in a very similar way. Um, for example, he showed us in the soil that the evolution of certain plants um, signals something, that the soil is um, deficient of a certain mineral. So, for example, the dandelion signals that there is an imbalance between um, calcium and, I, I guess, magnesium in the soil. And so... Um, he has the incentive to listen to these signals the same way that a good economist or somebody who is a business owner has the incentive to listen to market signals. If it's not my property, I don't have the incentive to spend so much time to examine the soil, the same way that I don't examine the marketplace, the changes of supply and demand, to examine institutional complexity, try to understand what is going on. And I think here the interplay between knowledge and the generation of a local knowledge versus the incentives, or in, in, in comparison with the incentives, in relation with the incentive structure, uh, is very revealing and the core theme of our seminar. I think participants really enjoyed it. And, you know, they, the important idea also is that they all come from totally different countries all around this beautiful planet. But they all agreed on the fact that There are some universal values, such as property and responsibility, but that they have to be adapted at the local context. So we did not claim to have one solution. 
we claim, we, we say there's a toolkit based on the recognition of this problem of incentives, problem knowledge and complexity and decentralization and competition uh, amongst a, a delocalized solution, uh, decentralized solutions. But then at the local level in each country, well, not even each country, each region, each city, each village, you have different solutions that you have to adjust even though the final goal is to maximize accountability and responsibility so that people care about the environment. There's not one mode of property. Also, when we say property rights, and we, this can be private property rights, obviously, but also property rights held in common, such as uh, what Eleanor Ostrom uh, has uh, developed in our works. Uh, she takes many examples, as, as Ren was saying before, of... Um, from irrigation systems in Spain, from forests in Indonesia, in, in places where you have um, people on the property in common. It's a small community, and the community has an incentive because it has a, proper, a common property. It's not private, but it's common. But it's not open access. This is very important. When you have open access, you have the tragedy of the commons. When you have property, be it individual or in common, you don't have it because people have a stake in, in the resource and they think, you know, they project themselves in the future. Yeah, and uh, when, we, when we went on the field trip, there was another dimension adding all, to all of this. This is the, the human progress and innovation to help us to overcome these problems and to adjust locally. So to find solutions not only on a local level, but to make these solutions easier and more accessible by reducing, for example, transaction costs or by making um, property rights more feasible. So one of the big inventions in human history has been barbed wire because it allowed us to solve the, the tragedy of the commons by parceling certain parts of the land. So here we can see how actually innovation helped us to achieve the goals that we want to have of responsibility, accountability, and the right incentives. So when we went to an electric uh, car maker during the field trip, we actually show or studied um, jointly how innovation can help us to overcome the problems that we currently see. And this is something that liberals endorse. That's why we are so prone of markets, because they um, allow uh, humanity to um, in institutionalize their creativity and ingenuity. Yeah. You know, sometimes... People, when, when you say, oh, but you're going to privatize the, the environment, it's not possible, the environment belongs to everybody. Yeah, well, you have to be practical. You have to concentrate on what works. And uh, Sven was uh, constantly uh, reminding us of this. Um, what matters is what works, or something like that. And um, <clears throat> when people own the environment on a private basis or a common basis, it does not mean that they're going f that nobody's going to be able to benefit from it. Quite the opposite. And during the field trip, we actually went to this uh, beautiful private park in the Netherlands, uh, which is privately owned by a foundation, which is, by the way, a beautiful museum with dozens of Van Goghs. <laughs> we were absolutely amazed by this, but uh, but this was only one one part of the surprise. The, the biggest surprise for me was uh, the how private incentives to protect the environment are so powerful, and it's a non. It can be on a non-profit basis when people say, "Oh, privatization means profit." Blah blah. 
not only, you can also think of foundations. Foundations in Switzerland, in the Netherlands, they do, or in England, they do a lot of job to protect the environment on a non-profitable ba- on a non-profit basis. Um, and this type of solution, we should not forget, it's very important to rely on them also. Yeah, I think that is something to pick up again, because it, in, especially in environmentalist circles, a lot of people say, well, I care about the, the elephants, I care about the rhinos, about certain species, about certain plants, and that's all nice and fine. But in the end, we also have to look at the institutional arrangement that achieves our goals of preserving these species. And what has shown or proved as a very good tool empirically is property rights. We have studied a lot of case studies of elephant population, rhino population, um, biodiversity, where we actually see that um, holding private property and letting markets generate the right incentives and knowledge actually helps us to preserve these species. So even if we might feel morally or ethically torn towards the idea of not owning property of animals. It's what helps to preserve these species the best. And this is an important dimension in the ethical debate. And here again, I think that uh, the liberal approach uh, can make a difference to the debate because this is often um, flooded or um, crowded out by other ethical concerns where everybody's engaging in what I call cheap talk and saying that I care about certain, uh, about certain species or about certain things without saying... Um, how I want to achieve the goal to preserve these. Yeah, and unfortunately, because of this, you have a lot of uh, a very centralized, top-down government regulation, uh, which can sometimes work, but very often they don't work, and they have unintended consequences, such as all the bans we have on the on various species. They just give uh, incentives to poachers, and you know, prohibition generates bad incentives uh, for uh, for people who do not want to respect the um, the prohibition. Uh, and on the other side, you have property rights, and suddenly the local people, they have a stake in protecting the environment. And I find this fascinating. Uh, in the top-down regulation, prohibition attitude, what you have is man versus nature. In the property rights approach, what you have is Nature for men and men for nature. Men and nature together. And I, I find this very profoundly uh, uh, satisfying, actually, from an ethical and, uh, and personal point of view. Thanks for listening to today's episode of IAF Talk. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you're interested to find more information about our work or the seminars we are offering, uh, you can find more information on our website, freiheit.org slash IAF or find the link in the show notes.